0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Hosanna. Many of you will know that word means save us and save us. God has in his son, Jesus Christ. And now for all of those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Christ is ours forevermore. Praise God for that wonderful news. Friends, please join me now in prayer. As we ask God to come and be with us and empower everything that we are about to do as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your plan of redemption. That you have accomplished in your son. And that you have applied to so many who sit here in this room by your spirit. And we pray, God, that as we look to your word now, that you would come and that you would be with us, that you would fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered here today. And we pray for all of us, that your spirit would fill us so that we might have ears that would be able to hear your truth and hearts that would receive it. And would rejoice over it. These things, Father, are so far above us. They're above our pay grade. And we can't accomplish them on our own. And so we ask you for your help. So we pray, Lord, that you would come. We pray that you would impart faith and sustain faith and change us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I gave a a talk in the last couple of years to a group of high school students. And I began that time with them by asking them this question. Amongst your peers, how do you think that Christianity is most misunderstood? Amongst your peers, how do you think that Christianity is most misunderstood? And I would say that not less than 90 percent, probably, of the responses that were given went something like this. Well, my friends think that Christianity is about a bunch of rules. It's about do this, don't do that. It's about what we do was basically the answer. And this is a common Confusion. It's no accident that these young people, most of them churched, would answer that question this way. People think by and large that Christianity is about a bunch of rules. Do these things. Don't do these things. That's what it is to be a Christian. So, friends, we must ask ourselves this morning and frankly, every day that we're breathing This most important question, not just what is Christianity, but what is the heart of it? What is the gospel, the good news? You see, even though the moral code of Christianity in terms of God's righteous and holy law applied to the heart level is a higher standard of righteousness than anything in the world, even though that's true. What sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is not its moral code. So much as it is, it's story. Christianity is a story about God and about God's plan of redemption accomplished through His Son Jesus applied to sinners that we might be saved and that we might be with God forever and worship Him and enjoy Him. He would be our God and we would be His people. We... We're all human beings, that is. We're all made in God's image. We were made unique in creation. We were made to reign over the world that God had made. And many in the room will be familiar with the beginning of the Bible. How the story begins. Shortly after creation, when everything is perfect, it's good. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. And tells them you are to reign over this world that I have made for you. And for my glory too. But if I've made this for you. And you are to reign over it. You are to fill it. You are to subdue it. You are to multiply and be fruitful. You can eat of anything that I've given you. But just don't eat that one of that one tree. And we know what happened. We know that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They violated that covenant that God had made with them. And therefore, everyone, every human being born after them and the entire creation along with it was plunged into ruin and disaster. All of this in the first three chapters of this very, very large book. And so the rest of this story is about God making another covenant, a covenant of redemption through which he would save his people. And at the center, at the pinnacle of that plan of redemption is God's son. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The Son of God. God the Son who took on human flesh 2,000 years ago. Truly God and truly man. He lived a perfect life. We've talked about this so much as we've made our way through this letter of Galatians. His perfect life is as important as His atoning death. Because we need righteousness that we do not have. Lawbreakers do not hang with the Lord God Almighty. So not only do our sins need to be atoned for, that's true, but we need perfect righteousness. We need someone to be our representative and fulfill God's law in our place. And Jesus accomplished both, fulfilling the law and then paying the penalty that the law requires of you and of me for breaking it. And so at the heart of Christianity is this message, not about anything that you need to do or I need to do, But it's this message, this wonderful, glorious message of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Christ, the triumphant resurrection in which he conquered sin and death and Satan, his glorious ascension to heaven, his reigning there now and his imminent return upon which God's plan of redemption will be consummated. That is the essence of Christianity that God saves sinners. So it's important, friends, as we think about not only our text for today, but any text from Scripture, as we think about even that group of high school students and the fact that they represent so many people in the evangelical church who would answer the question, what's Christianity about? It's about a bunch of rules, man. It's about doing things and not doing others. We have to acknowledge that as evangelicals and By that word, I mean Protestant, not Roman Catholic, not Eastern Orthodox, but Protestant, conservative, Bible-believing Christians in the West. As evangelicals, we are so prone to turn the gospel into something that we must do. So I'm going to continue. I've been beating this drum for a while. Hopefully you're not tired of it. I am not tired of beating that drum. That the gospel is never... Something that you do or I do in any way. Paul has been crystal clear about those things. God did give his law in the context of his covenant of redemption. And is his law good? You better believe it's good. He gave the law and it's a guide for the believer's life. That is absolutely true. And if we're asking the question, are there imperatives in the Bible? Are there commands even in the New Testament? Of course there are. And all of those things, those realities that God's law is good, that God's law is the guide for the believer and that there are commands to us in the New Testament. None of those things are the gospel. There is a distinction that must be made between law and gospel. And we'll be thinking more about that even today. This matters, that distinction matters for every text that we would ever preach. And it matters for us this morning. As we look at a text that is familiar to many, it's a relatively well-known text, the fruit of the spirit, the works of the flesh. So, friends, as we look today at Galatians chapter five, verses 16 through 24, just public service announcement, what I will not be doing this morning is expounding on each of the works of the flesh that are listed there. I also will not be expounding on each of the fruits of the spirit that are listed there. That would be a good thing to do, certainly. And maybe we'll come back down the road and do that. You realize, like I do, that that would essentially be a topical sermon. It would be a topical sermon on these various virtues or these various (coughs) sins, unpacking what they look like. We'll give some brief consideration to the lists, but that will not be the main point of today's message. What I hope to do, which is what I hope to do every time I'm in the pulpit, is to preach this passage in its context, to preach it not only in the immediate context of Galatians, but also in the context of that great story that we were just thinking about in the context of that great plan of redemption and how God has unfolded that through history. And then one other thing, just again, by way of maybe some help to you so that you understand even how I'm approaching the passage today. What I fear often happens with this text, I impugn nobody's motivations in this at all. I trust good things are meant by every guy who's ever done this. But I fear what often happens when we get to this passage is that we functionally forget the gospel. We will preach Galatians 1 through 515. And then it's almost like we will functionally deny so much of what Paul has been arguing for the better part of five chapters. And I'll explain to you a little bit more of what I mean as we get into the text itself. We often understand and preach this text in a way that essentially and functionally denies the gospel that we're held. And so obviously, I hope to avoid doing that by God's grace. And so if you have your Bibles with you, That's a good thing. Go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 5. If you did not bring a Bible with you today, no worries. We've got the verses. Sean is on it this morning. He's already got the verses up there. And I'm going to do to him what I often do, even though the sermon text begins in verse 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 for context, just so that we can read that thought prior. But he's already on it. This man's a stud. All right. Friends, before we move any further, before we move any further, I want to read God's Word for us, and then we'll consider it together. So put your eyes on verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. This is the word of God. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have four points or four headings for us this morning. We're going to think about this text underneath those headings. We'll take them one at a time. Number one, heading number one, point number one, we'll call it the internal war. The internal war. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17 primarily for the next few moments. You can put your eyes there on verse 16 and see what Paul says. He's just been talking to them about living together. The Galatian Christians, that is. How they were called to freedom in Christ. But how their freedom is not to be used as an opportunity to indulge their sinful desires. But that freedom in Christ exists so that they might genuinely love one another. We thought about that two weeks ago. And then he tells them in that context. But I tell you, now I'm telling you, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not do those horrible things that destroy one another and bring ruin even upon the church. Sin, you realize this, I hope. If not, maybe we'll think about it today together. Sin is always antisocial. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Sin is always antisocial. So it's not an accident that Paul is talking to these believers about what walking in the spirit looks like and what not gratifying the flesh looks like in the context of how we (coughs) live together. Sin is always antisocial in that it always results in harm to others. And I know there's objections going up all over the room right now. What about private sins, man? What about those sins that I commit by myself that affect no one else? There is no such thing. Whether we realize it or not, reason with me for a moment. Whether we realize it or not, there is no such thing as a private sin that doesn't harm another human being. This is because in its nature, sin is always selfish. Sin is always self-absorbed. It's always about me. What I want and what I desire Forget what anyone else desires, whether that's God or a brother or sister in the faith or my friend or my spouse or my kids or whoever. And you realize that that kind of living, that kind of practice of indulging your sinful desires, even if you're doing it by yourself, is inevitably going to result in harming other people. That kind of selfish, self-absorbed lifestyle will end up bringing destruction and ruin upon every relationship that you have. So Paul is dealing with something that is deadly serious, that not only brings bad things into the life of the individual, but it also brings destruction into the life of the body of Christ. I tell you though, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't destroy one another. You won't. As a general rule, indulge your sin. It is through walking by the Spirit, according to Paul, that we can honor God and love others and keep from sinning. Just so you know this as well, in, uh, it's going to be a few weeks from now because we're going to take a break from Galatians and I'm going to do a brief series on, on marriage, essentially. Though I don't even know that I want to call it a marriage series anymore because I think it's just more sin and the realities of a fallen world. But That's another conversation for another time. You'll get that next week. We will be dealing again with this idea of walking by the Spirit and living by the Spirit in the next Galatians sermon. So just have that on your radar screens. If you feel like, oh my gosh, you did not give adequate treatment to what it means to walk in the Spirit, there will be another sermon. Patience, though. It won't be until September 23rd, Lord willing. So as we kind of continue on, friends, into verse 17, I want you to put your eyes there. The reason that walking by the Spirit keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh is this. For because you won't gratify the desires of the flesh if you walk by the Spirit because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It is because the Spirit desires something that is against the desires of the flesh that walking in the Spirit would keep you from sin. Sin wants something different than the spirit of God wants, essentially. And so if we're walking here, we're not indulging here. That's his argument. The spirit and the flesh, you see this as easily as I do, are contrasted to one another again. This happened also in chapter 3. In verse 3, where Paul asked, if, having begun by the spirit in this thing called the Christian life... Are you now being perfected? Are you going to finish by the flesh, by your own willing and working? The answer, of course, was no. So this is the second time that the spirit and our flesh are being contrasted or being put in opposition to one another. And of course, you know, the other great contrast in the letter is that of faith and works. Faith in Christ a means of justification, right? Faith in the object of faith, Jesus, over and against keeping the law is the other great contrast of the letter. But I want us to look a little bit more at what Paul says here in verse 17. The Spirit, what it desires, what He desires are against the flesh and what the flesh desires is against the Spirit. And because of that reality, because of the effect that sin has on us, sin keeps us from doing things that we want to do. Vice versa, the Spirit keeps us from doing or keep, or allows us and empowers us to do the things that we want to do. At the new birth, we're united to Christ. We've thought about this a lot in this letter. Union with Christ in such a way we've been united to his death. We've been united to him in his resurrection. We've been united to him to walk in newness of life. And sin no longer has dominion over us because we have been united to Jesus. Jesus has conquered sin for us. We've talked about how in being crucified with Christ... We really died in Jesus to the law and have been set free from the law and the bondage of sin. So if the new birth were united to Jesus and sin no longer reigns over us, which means that as regenerate people, born again people, we now actually have the ability not to sin. You have the ability not to sin in a way that you did not before you were converted, before you were regenerate. We're regenerated by the Spirit of God. Upon conversion, we begin imperfectly, but really to desire the things of God. We've talked about this. The transformed life is real in that we are not what we once were. But all of this, that ability now not to sin and the desires that are changing within me and the reality that there still is this thing called the flesh and indwelling sin, Creates now a new kind of conflict inside of us that did not exist before. This is why, when people think that being called by God and His sovereign grace to become a Christian, if you think that it's going to make your life easier, I'm sorry to disappoint you, it's just not true. Often you will find that the struggle becomes more intense, the struggle becomes more real, because before I was sinning and I didn't care. Maybe in some earthly way I did because it might affect my relationships or it might affect my finances or my living situation or whatever. So I care about that, but I don't care about my sin. But upon being converted by the Spirit of God and these realities taking place inside me, there now is a real war and a real conflict going on. It's intense. God's Spirit is now in us. He's changing our hearts and He's renewing our minds. He's giving us new desires and we are still fallen. Redeemed, yes. Regenerate, yes. And still fallen. We still have a nature corrupted in Adam. And so, there is an internal war. These words, friends, as you look at verse 17 of Galatians 5, this sounds just like what Paul talks about in Romans (coughs) chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, that wonderful chapter where Paul talks about the normal experience of the Christian. This internal wrestling where there are things that I want to do now because I'm born again that I don't find myself doing because sin is waging war against my spirit. There are things that I don't want to do anymore because I'm born again. That I find myself doing because sin is waging war against my spirit. This battle is so real and so intense. Paul ends that section of his letter by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The struggle is real, friends. Verse 17 of Galatians 5 makes that crystal clear. So now as we consider this internal war that exists in us now because we've been born again by the Spirit of God who trusted Christ, let's now move on to our second point, our second heading. Number two, I'm going to entitle it, An Important Distinction. If number one was the internal war, number two, An Important Distinction we're going to look at verse 18. Look at what Paul introduces there. He says, but, this internal war is real, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're thinking, okay, what do I make of that? If I'm led by the Spirit, I'm not under the law. That not under the law piece is critical. It's critical in this section of the letter. Romans 6, and especially verse 14. Paul makes clear to us that the way in which we are free from the law, the way we become free from bondage to the law is through union with Christ through faith. In Christ, we have been set free from the law. And in Romans 6.14, he tells us that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. As I mentioned just a moment ago, this happens because Jesus is our representative in every way. For those who trust in Christ, he is our representative in his perfect life, but also in his death under the law. He died a lawbreaker's death for people who had broken the law. He did not die for his own sins because he did not have any. And so that death he died is counted to you and me through faith. The punishment is paid. And so that means that we have in reality, in the eyes of God, legally, We have died to the law and the penalty is paid and we are set free in Jesus from bondage to the law. So we could look at verse 18 and say, if we are led by the spirit, we're not under the law. We can then understand that to be led by the spirit is to be united to Jesus. Right. To be led by the spirit means we're not under the law. To be united to Christ means we're not under the law. To be united to Christ and led by the spirit are one and the same. If we are united to Christ in a death like his, then our sinful nature was crucified with him so that sin would no longer reign in us. That's because we are no longer under law, but under grace. So if we wanted to look at Galatians 5:18 and continue to refine our understanding, it would be right to say if we are led by the spirit, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. If we are not led, excuse me, if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Because to be led by the Spirit is to be united with Christ. To be united with Christ is to not be under the law, but to be under grace. This matters a ton. This matters a ton when we come to a text like this. Because there is no longer any condemnation for us. Praise God that that's true. Christ's works have been credited to us. Christ's death in our place for our sin has been counted to us. And we have been raised in him to walk in newness of life, free from condemnation, but free from bondage to the law. And so as we get ready to think about verses 19 through 23 in particular, we need to have this in view. We must have the gospel in view. We need to see the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit through the lens of the gospel. You've heard me mention already the distinction that needs to be made between the law and the gospel when we come to any text of Scripture. That matters because anytime we come up against imperatives or commands or <coughs> exhortations or strategies or penalties, All of those things are good and all of those things are law. They're not gospel. To preach commands as gospel is wrong and irresponsible. Commands are good and there are things that we should do, but none of those things are gospel. So as we come to the Bible... We must remember that we are saved by the gospel, by Jesus Christ, period, period. The law, as we've considered from this letter already, its first and primary use is what? Its first and primary use, the law, is to show us our sin and to drive us to the Savior. Paul made that crystal clear in chapter three. And as we've considered many times, this first use of the law is not something that you just needed once. Right. That first use of the law to show you your sin and drive you to Jesus is an ongoing every day, every hour reality. As you are confronted with the fact that you do not measure up to God's standard, you are driven again and again to repent of your sin, to turn from it, to mourn over it and then to fling yourself Cast yourself headlong upon the mercy of God in Christ and rejoice in the fact that you no longer stand condemned. That first use of the law never goes away for the believer. And then alongside that for the Christian, the law is also our guide. To use the language of one of my favorite theologians in church history, the law is our kind advisor. Once we become Christians, once we are in Christ Jesus, the law no longer condemns. The law is a happy thing. The law is a good and wonderful thing. And it is our kind advisor. The law is our perfect guide for living in it. God's truth and wisdom and standards are given to us. And we free from fear and free from condemnation. We get we get to live according to God's law. We're no longer driven, as we've thought about so many times, by that dread peace. We're driven and motivated by delight and joy and love and gratitude. We do it in freedom. We do it in faith. So this important distinction, the distinction that I'm making, friends, is that distinction between law and gospel. Between being under law and under grace. Paul, it's no accident that he reminds them again, you're not under the law anymore. You are under grace in the spirit as you've been united to Christ. Now that we've considered that together, let's move on to heading number three. Very creative, very clever heading. The works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. Paul says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident that could be rendered The works of the flesh are obvious. By that, what he means is that they are obviously bad. They are. Read the list. They don't require much, if any, explanation from a guy like me, a preacher like me, to explain to you why they're bad. Now, if they they do, sometimes they do in the world, right? We may need to have good conversations about especially some of the issues of sexuality. Help me to understand why... Having sex with someone who's not my spouse is a bad thing. We might need to clarify some of those things from time to time. But by and large, this list, it is self-evidently bad. It's part of what Paul is saying. Paul lists a number of these works of the flesh. It's certainly not a comprehensive list, but you can see them with me. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife and jealousy, fits of anger, Explosive anger, right? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Murder could be inserted there. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a pretty serious list. And then comes the warning. You see that in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now remember... As you see that, again, you've got to have this category in your mind. Every time you see a warning like that in the New Testament, you've got to have that category that that, that warning is, it is a warning that's real and it is law. It is good and it's law. It's right and it's true and it's God's law. That if you do these things, you deserve hell. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who do this do not deserve heaven. Full stop. Judgment and condemnation await everyone who practices the works of the flesh. If you're feeling nervous, if you're feeling uncomfortable, I'm with you. Because if you are honest at all, and if you are sane at all, as you sit here this morning, you look at that list and you see a number of things that describe you, that describe things you do. I certainly do. I see things in here in various forms and degrees that I struggle with. So, in thinking about that reality, that judgment and condemnation await everyone who practices the works of the flesh, I want to make two comments about that. So, this is kind of subpoint one and two. Number one, something that I hope is welling up inside of you as you look at that list and compare it to your life. Is that you look at it and you say, praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God for the good news. Because every one of us is damned in and of ourselves. Thank you for your prayer today, Sean. It was appropriate that we're praying a prayer of confession today. Because we should feel the weight of our sin. And know that we stand condemned in our own merit. So we have all done works of the flesh and it's not just past tense. It's ongoing. We still do them. We struggle in our flesh and our humanity against sin. Paul has been very clear again in this passage, right? Verse 17 just happened. He's acknowledged that people sin and that people struggle. So whatever he's talking about in verse 21 could not mean you better. You've got to be perfect. And not do this, right? But we also know that God doesn't grade on a curve. That His standard is perfect. That's why we needed one. The perfect one, right? What's the front of our bulletin even say? It's on our website. Imperfect people, that's bad. Perfect Savior, that's awesome. That's what we need. Praise God for Jesus. Because He took all of our works of the flesh, all of our sexual immorality and our impurity and our sensuality and our sorcery, or if you engage in that kind of thing, and strife and jealousy and anger, envy, drunkenness. He took all of that on himself and paid for it all. And then you realize that Jesus never... This this kind of like was a mind blow for me even this week. I'm looking at that list... Jesus never did a single work of the flesh ever, ever in his entire life on earth, ever in his perfect life. That perfect life of never doing a work of the flesh is counted to me when I trust in him. That is shockingly and scandalously good news. All of this through faith. That's gospel. Praise God for it. Second comment I want to make about judgment and condemnation coming to people who do works of the flesh is that now that we are justified, declared righteous in Christ, and united to Him, we should flee from works of the flesh. Let me say that again. Now that we are justified and united to Christ, we should run from works of the flesh. Not because we're trying to earn salvation but for several other reasons. These things are clearly bad. They don't honor God, obviously. And even in your own life, the dishonor to God is the biggest deal, right? But if you want to just talk like existentially, your life, these kinds of things, these works of the flesh, as they characterize us and as they kind of infiltrate our lives, they bring pain, and suffering, and heartache, and ruin. They lead nowhere good. Nowhere good. So we should, friends, strive to avoid these things. We should fight against them. We are justified completely by faith in Jesus Christ. We are counted righteous completely in Him. And that never, as we've considered, ever does that, Faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, gospel produce apathy. It doesn't. It gives us life with which to fight. And so we strive and we fight against these works of the flesh. Not only do we strive and do we fight, but we pray. We pray for grace that we would not engage in these kinds of things. Not because we're a bunch of prudes, not because we're a bunch of moralists who think that we're going to be saved by keeping the rules, but because we love God and want to honor God and because we believe him, we have faith in God that these things will wreck our lives. And so we run from them and we pray for the grace that we need to not engage in them. And then we lock arms together as a local church. As brothers and sisters in the faith that have covenanted together, we lock arms together and help one another in the fight. That's what we do. And all of this, I trust it might go without saying, but I want to be clear. All of this we do in the power and in the grace of God. By the Spirit of God. Knowing, knowing that we are good with Him and that He is good with us. And that we will never face condemnation because of Jesus Christ. Fourth heading, number four. Also very cleverly entitled, the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. So number one, the internal war. Number two, an important distinction. Number three, the works of the flesh. Point heading number four, the fruit of the spirit. Put your eyes on verse 22. If the works of the flesh were obviously bad, the fruits of the spirit, friends, are obviously good, right? They're obviously good. Look at the list love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Those things are obviously and self evidently good. Paul reiterates that in verse 23 by saying against such things, there is no law. No kidding, Paul. Those things are awesome. Those things are worked in human beings by God because those things characterize God and his righteousness and his perfection. This is massively important what I'm about to say. So if you're a note taker at all, or maybe even if you're not, I'd I'd want you to remember this. The fruits of the Spirit are not a list of virtues to conform ourselves to. They are not a list of moral goals to accomplish. Let's say that again. The fruits of the Spirit are not a list of virtues for us to conform ourselves to, nor are they a list of moral goals to accomplish. What the fruits of the Spirit are? They are a description of what God is working into our lives by His Spirit as we trust His Son. So this is not white-knuckle, willpower religion, let me conform myself to that list and I'll be good with God. That is not what these are. This is a list and a description of what God is doing in and through you right now. As you trust his son and rely upon his spirit and apply the means that he's given. I don't want to get ahead of myself. They are, after all, I was having a conversation with somebody once about this. Just kind of like we were lamenting the way that sometimes this text is handled. And it's like people do realize that they are called fruits of the spirit, right? I mean, they're not fruits of your working. They're not fruits of your doing. They're fruits of God's spirit that he does in you and works in you and through you. That doesn't mean that you just check out and do whatever you want, grab your popcorn and watch the movie. No, that's not what we're saying. But don't ever get it confused that this is about moralism or morality or something in and of itself. It's about something far greater than that. It's about something that is supernatural, that God does, that we could never do in our own strength. They, the fruits of the Spirit, describe the heart transformation that God is working in us by His grace. And alongside that, friends, I would also say that list of fruits of the Spirit, not only do they tell us what God is doing by grace, they show us how much we need that grace. Because, I don't know if you. If you're looking at that list, I pray that as you look at that list, everybody in this room that hears the sound of my voice would look at that and say, I need help. If you're looking at that list and you're thinking, I'm doing pretty good here. Talk to me after the service. I'll be back there at that door. And I just want to kind of dose of sanity. Okay? You're not doing that well. None of us are. So, friends, this is why the, the approach to this text that is simply don't do the works of the flesh. Do these things. Be. The fruit of the Spirit. That kind of conform yourself approach. That's why it's puzzling to me. Because forget the works of the flesh for a minute. We've already thought about them. Let's just talk about the fruits of the Spirit. If the fruits of the Spirit are some kind of new law that we must conform to in order to be saved. The fruits of the Spirit are not good in that sense anymore. They are a death sentence. Because none of us will ever demonstrate in this life an adequate amount of the fruit of the Spirit in order to merit salvation. Nobody. So looking at that list, looking at the fruits of the Spirit, we need help. And praise God that He is faithful to give it. And He does. Pray for that help from God. Pray for grace that He would work by His Spirit in you. And friends, be diligent in applying ordinary means that God has given, right? Well, you're asking, brother, what are those ordinary means? Happy to talk to you about that. The ordinary means that God has given us through which we are changed and transformed and sanctified. Not an exhaustive list, but I'll happily consider a few for a moment. One, he's given us the word of God. The word of God, it's perfect. It's true. It's right. It's good. It cuts us to pieces. It puts us back together again. It is our guide. It shows us our sin. It drives us to our savior. The word of God. Next, he has given us ordinary means called sacraments, ordinances of the church. Lord's Supper baptism. He's given us those things. Baptism is a one-time thing, sort of an initiatory thing. We are baptized into Christ Jesus and into the people of God, the local church. But then the Lord's Supper is ongoing. This table that we partake of every week, we do that. We were told to do it in Scripture. We're not told to do it every week, but as elders, we have decided to do it every week because we understand that this is a means that God uses to visibly remind us every week of the gospel and what God has done for us in His Son. So we understand this very much to be an ordinary means through which God sustains your faith and continues to reassure you that you are good with Him and He is good with you. So if God's given us His Word, He's also given us sacrament. He's given us the local church. And those Word and sacrament realities that I'm talking about, yet yeah, it is wonderful and you should be reading your Bible on your own. Amen. But I'm primarily talking about word and sacrament realities in this context. God has given us the local church and the ministry of the word and the right administration of the sacraments in order that we would be sanctified, made more holy, in order that we would be kept in the faith, in order that we would endure to the end. You desperately need the local church. And it doesn't have to be this one. It can be another local church that preaches the gospel. This is not some self-serving thing that I'm saying right now. You and I, we desperately need this. We need to be in covenant community with other brothers and sisters who believe the same things that we do according to scripture. And we need to lock arms together and follow Christ together. This is a community project. This thing called the Christian life. This thing called assurance. This thing called discipleship. We do it together. So, God has given us His Word. He's given us sacrament. He's given us the local church. He's given us prayer. Prayer. What a wonderful means that He has given us that we can talk to Him. It doesn't have to be in any particular form, it can be very conversational. Talk to God about our struggle with sin. We confess to Him our sins, and He is faithful and just to cleanse us. From them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to forgive us for our sins. We can ask him for his help and his grace that we might live unto him. He is delighted to answer prayers like those. And God has also, this is another one that has landed on me lately. God has also given us song. Song. He's given us verse and music and rhythm. I don't know about you, but I'm gripped every week by songs that we sing, by the truth that's contained in them, by some of the melodies. I don't love all of them. I trust you don't either. Your preferences about melodies don't matter. Nor do mine. And so the theology, though, that's in those songs, those words, and some of those tunes, man, they affect us. They teach us. They're means that God has given to sustain faith. They're means that God has given to continue to sanctify. So friends, one comment that I would make about walking in the spirit or walking by the spirit that Paul is referencing here. All of those ordinary means that I'm talking about characterize a life of walking in the spirit, walking by the spirit. It's not some mystical thing. It's a very real and practical thing to walk in the spirit is to avail yourself of the ordinary means that God has given us and told us to use in his word. His word, sacrament, church, prayer, song, and other such things. Fill your life with those kinds of things. Orient your life around those kinds of things. And you will be walking in the Spirit. Friends, I pray to this. we draw this to a close. That as you look at the list, those fruits of the Spirit, that every believer in the room is looking at it thinking, not only I need help, Not only I'm not doing well, not only God give me grace, but I pray that you look at that list and you say, you know what? With all my heart, I want those things to describe me. I want those things to describe me. They describe me as some of those things I'm seeing in my life, but I want more of that. I pray that's everyone's desire and everyone's posture. And the wonderful news about it is that we can all take heart that God is doing the work. God is making us into the kinds of people who are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The work has begun. And you know and I know that it's not yet finished. We live in between of the beginning of that work and the completion of that work. We live between the already what's been accomplished and the not yet the consummation that awaits. No one is fully sanctified yet. But there will come a day when you will be and so will I. The work will be done one day and it will be done perfectly because God will have seen to that. He has promised that. Hebrews chapter 10. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The work of Christ makes it a certainty. Perfected for all time. It's done. It's finished. It's guaranteed. Christ, Ephesians 5, loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Praise God. That's true. Paul reiterates that wonderful promise in verse 24, friends. I would encourage all of us as we look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in all sincerity, that's not a goal to achieve. That's a reality that's been accomplished. It's over. This has happened. As you have been converted by God's Spirit and united to Christ, that has been done. And now God is changing you. Through union with Jesus in His death, we've been set free from the dominion of sin. We've been crucified with Christ, and we now live by faith in Him. So, verse twenty-four, friends, the verse on the front of your bulletin is a verse of encouragement. That if you are in Christ, you can take heart. That the Spirit of God in you will win that internal war against your flesh. In the end, I'll say that again. If you are in Christ, you can take heart. That the Spirit of God in you will win. The eternal war against your flesh in the end. It's a guaranteed victory. Praise be to God. So, as we apply the ordinary means God has given us, those word and sacrament and church and prayer and song type realities, the Holy Spirit continues to do that extraordinary work in us to produce the fruits of the Spirit. And the ultimate promise, friends, we must never forget is that. One day we will be fully sanctified. One day we will be perfect. And that's that's pretty awesome. But the end goal of all of that is that we will be with God. We will be presented to Jesus in perfection and we will see him as he is and we will get him forever. Like we sang earlier, Christ is mine forevermore. I want to leave you with words from the last book of the Bible describing this great reality. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? He's talking about that great multitude that no one can count wearing pure white robes. Who are these? The elder, one of the elders asks John, the writer of the letter. I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Therefore, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. (coughs) Praise the Lord. He's promised to do that. He's promised to sanctify you. He's promised to make you more like His Son. He's promised to work in you the fruits of His Holy Spirit. And He has promised that you will get Him forever. And that He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes and mine. It will be a great day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would continue to work in us by your spirit, even as we've been considering this morning. We pray that you would continue to work in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We pray, God, that you would sustain our faith, that you would continue to give us faith in your son. We pray, Lord, that we would be filled with joy and anticipation at the knowledge of what you most certainly will do in us and for us. We pray for ourselves as a church that we would lock arms together, that we would walk lovingly and charitably and faithfully with one another. We pray that we would bring you honor as individuals and as a church. We pray for all of these things in Jesus name. Amen.